0: Greetings and welcome again to the podcast At Length with Steve Scher. This is a podcast where we take the time to delve into issues and ideas with people at length. This one is especially at length. I had the chance to walk around Seattle's international district, Chinatown, with Marie Wong. She's a scholar on international districts. She has a PhD in urban design and planning. She's an associate professor at Seattle University, Institute of Public Service, Asian Studies Program. She's the author of many publications on Chinese-American settlements and the necessity for the preservation of ethnic communities in urbanizing America. Her first book was Sweet Cakes, Long Journey, the Chinatowns of Portland, Oregon. Building Tradition, Pan-Asian Seattle and Life in the Residential Hotels has just been released from Chin Music Press. I interviewed her for an article I wrote in Seattle Magazine, based on her research about these residential hotels in Seattle, of which you'll hear much more about. The article is in the December 2018 issue of Seattle Magazine. I also used a highlight from our interview to promote her own appearance at Town Hall in November that ran on the In the Moment podcast that I do with Town Hall. Wong is steeped in the history of Seattle's International District and the larger history of Chinatowns across America. So she gave me a guided tour outside and inside the International Chinatown District. Part one and part two are both an hour long. Part one out on the street, part two in the West Kong building. If that seems too long, well, go to the podcast episode webpage. There's an annotated list of listening spots that you can land on along the way if you want to jump through the interview. Before we start our walk, and I know we'll talk about this, but how about you? How did you get engaged sent for the book about portland
1: oh Uh, sweet sweet cakes long journey
0: sweet cakes long journey that was your phd dissertation
1: it started out as my doctoral dissertation and then it ended up being a book about portland's chinatown so a lot of the stuff that's in a dissertation that people have no interest in like methodology chapters i mean you know this Um, you get rid of those chapters and then I put it the context of what was happening in the American city at the time that Portland's Chinatown was developing so that people understand the, the ethnic community and how it fits into um, the greater scheme of settlement in the Pacific Northwest so
0: and then the, the book that is out
1: you know I'm always a little reluctant to tell people that I started working on this twenty years ago but that's you know I, I was just finishing up Sweet Cakes and that's how projects I don't know they they kind of come to a person that you have something in the back you know what I'm talking about you have something in your head and then you think okay well I'll get back to that but first I must finish this so you start working on a project and then you finish up something else and then it kind of it continues to escalate and boom
0: anything in particular inspired that project I mean, it's logical it's a logical project to follow on the one from Portland but anything in particular
1: Uh, Yes, I was walking by the Panama Hotel one day and Jan Johnson had, she had recently purchased it from uh, Takashi Hori. And I was just walking by the building and I thought, you know, this is a really interesting building. I wonder how many of these buildings there are. And that was the question and that was all it took. So from that point it was looking in the district, reading about the architects, reading about the settlement of this area, uh, looking at archival information. So I've been, I've looked at everything you can imagine from assessor's records to land use sales to, you know, I've been to the Puget Sound Regional Archives, the King County Archives, the Seattle Municipal Archives, the public library archive, I mean, every place you can imagine to just dig and get records um, to learn what happened here. So, And then, you know, part of it was also talking with the people. Um, you know, the, the wonderful thing about ordinances and uh, policies is that they, they will give you the framework, but they won't fill in the framework. The framework is best filled in by the people who operated, lived in. You know, I had businesses in these buildings, so that's how that started. Um, I
0: know we're gonna come circle around to this again, but just on the basis of that article and just your gen- having this book out, what you're thinking, what, what's this neighborhood, what's gonna happen with this neighborhood 20 years from now or 50 years from now? What do you, what's your gut feeling? You don't have to, you know, just your gut. I'm not holding you to it. My,
1: my gut feeling is that it's, it's pretty bleak. You know, and it depends on where you look at the boundaries of the neighborhood. But if you're looking at anything east of I-5, I mean, we're we're watching this happen right now, where those two-story buildings that were part of the definition of Little Saigon, now we're seeing all of that, you know, under the threat of redevelopment. Because the second that, actually it happened before the city approved it, but, um, when the word gets out that that land has a higher value, all of a sudden the developers swoop in and they start buying up properties that have these you know, one-story, two-story buildings, and they look at the highest and best use. And that means that you're going to see a lot of these modest buildings torn down. And I think one thing that people forget is, we're not just talking about residential buildings, but we're also talking about buildings that have commercial storefronts. And those commercial storefronts pay, you know, for the most part, a pretty modest rent. The second that you build something that has got, you know, that that same typology that we're seeing all over the city now of these, you know, mid-story to high-story buildings with at-grade commercial, the cost is so high that nonprofit associations that are in those spaces, um, small mom-and-pop businesses, they can't they can't come back even if they're invited to come back because the cost per square foot is so high.
0: It'd have to be be subsidized by a benevolent developer.
1: By something. And that's one thing that, um, if you take a look at the MHA uh, resolution and you look at any of the supportive documents, uh, mandatory housing affordability. But if you look at any of the information, um, the only thing that they'll tell you is that they'll continue to investigate possibilities for you know, low-income housing replacement, but there's nothing in there that actually says, point blank, we will provide mitigation for the loss of yeah. residential units or something else. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I
0: mean, even in that Seattle Times article, it was very much couched in a, you know, we'll look at it, we'll yeah. consider. Uh, and that means that what I was curious about was that the, uh, the argument is, well, the developer will put into put money into a, a fund and we'll build affordable housing somewhere, not yes. necessarily in the neighborhood. That's
1: but. really important, yeah, yeah.
0: So, all right, I'm looking up. Where are we, on Maynard, right?
1: Uh, we are on King Street. King. Yep. So we're
0: at King between 7th and 8th. I'm <laughs> looking up on the other side of I-5. Yeah. So I'll wait for the Cedar Grove guy to go by. <laughs> oh, no, I won't. Oh, well. <laughs> But, he, uh, but that's uh, that's your example, right? What is that, eight stories, that building that's right across the street just I being built right so. now?
1: Yeah, I believe so. And, you know, they can build 120 feet. And in fact, it's going to happen even within the historic core of, Where we are now? of the district. Yeah, that there's, um, uh, you know, the district is pretty interesting because it's got this multi-layer of um Boundary lines, so the historic core of the of the district is protected as um, National Register property. It's also protected under um, the International Special Review District ordinance, but for any vacant property or for buildings that are not considered to be contributing to the district Those buildings can all be replaced like the one that's across the street the um, Seven Seas restaurant is, is going to be redeveloped. And the building is going to be higher, I'm, I'm sorry I don't know the exact height right now, but it's going to be taller than any of the other surrounding buildings. The good thing is that it's going to be low income housing.
0: Who's building that?
1: Uh, interim Community Development.
0: And yeah. Will they have, uh, will it be the full half block and will they have retail on the bottom?
1: Uh, you know I think that they're still working out what it is that they want to see in that but you know the wonderful thing and and again I'm I'm biased here because I also sit on the interim board but interim really cares about the community they care about the neighborhood they care about the people who live here Um, the services the social services that make up the district the you know low-income housing to make sure that we can still provide for the people who have lived in the district for you know, basically and literally a lifetime. Um, um,
0: all right, here. What were you going to? What were you going to show me? Well, let's start. Where, why are we here? What's the? What's this? What are these two buildings?
1: Well, I probably did a disservice to you by saying I'll meet you in front of the the former Fortuna um, because the best way of seeing the buildings is actually the best way of seeing anything is across the street. Um, but uh, hey, why do you
0: say the former Fortuna? Are they closed. I used to eat here.
1: Yes, they did, they retired. Um, But Fortuna is coming back. Uh, They sold the business to somebody who is going to retain the name. Um, The menu is going to be different. We'll we'll wait to see what that's gonna be like. But um, that should be open by, uh, let's see, mid-October. So for the next couple of months, they're going to be doing work on the inside of, of the restaurant, you know, new chairs and tables and that sort of thing. It was, yeah, it was really sad when we had our last meal at Fortuna. And, in fact, the Cognac board, uh, we started conducting meetings. You know, we always had dinner at Fortuna at 6 o'clock, and then we had our board meeting, and so this is a it's a real shift for us, too. Um,
0: what what makes this building unique, both these buildings? Cognac East and West, right?
1: Yes. Well, <laughs> the buildings are actually... Kind of the flagship buildings of what became the new Chinatown area, and new from the shifts that kept taking place with the Pan-Asian District. um, The first kind of core of Chinatown was actually at, um, let's see, it was at Yesler and First, which used to be Commercial and Mill Street
0: good we're outside this is we're what outside. this is what this neighborhood is like you know I I, well, I was surprised that the Chinatown extended that far
1: yeah that was that was the initial core of it um, probably around 1860 and yeah, then, I shouldn't
0: say extended that far that was where that folks was settled it.
1: yeah and then right after um, right after the Seattle fire it was in 1889 you started to see new buildings that were being constructed in the area that was part of the fire zone and that's when you started to see the Chinatown really take shape in a new core area around 2nd and Washington Street and as the Japanese started coming in and immigrating into the city then their businesses are kind of scattered among the Chinese businesses so there's really never been a time that it hasn't been a pan-Asian district.
0: The Philippine Filipinos too came a little later?
1: Uh, the Filipinos start making a really strong physical presence in the city around 1920 and by 1920 you, you, you see that complete migration of the Chinatown, Japantown, Second and Washington core that is moved into this area um, and that's possible by the filling of the Tide Flats. So everything west of 5th was basically inundated with water every 24 hours. Um, the Jackson Street regrade, which was actually the Jackson Street, 12th Avenue, and Dearborn Street regrades. So that gave a a whole lot of opportunity for redevelopment, and that basically was charming the Asian American community, um, in part, to build a new district. So part of it is coercion, and the other part is choice. They chose to come here. The coercion was from the uh, construction of the Union Station and the railroad tunnel because at the time that they were discussing building a tunnel that was going to connect the south side of the downtown with the north so basically a tunnel that would go from Jackson underground through the downtown and connect to Virginia well when they were talking about doing it and the city was looking at exercising the power of eminent domain to do it uh, there was a lot of talk that the Chinatown and Japantown core that was at Second Washington was going to be the most affected, and that's exactly what happened. So that kind of started this trajectory. So that by, ni- by 1927, uh, the Second Avenue extension that both the city and businesses, local businesses, wanted to see happen because they wanted that straight shot that was going to connect the north side of the downtown to the rail stations. So in 1927 you know that careens through this diagonal roadway that ends up taking more of what was historic Chinatown. So it you know all of this happens over a period of a few decades. So yeah. um,
0: I had read, by, by way of following up on that, I had read well what's the, what's the meaning of kong yik?
1: For the mutual benefit. And,
0: and I had read that that's what happened here.
1: Uh, pretty much, yeah. Uh, the the Chinese, in fact, there were about 600 investors. Some of them became sh- shareholders and some of them were short-time investors. Um, but you're talking about 600 Chinese people that are all being led by a core group of really influential and by that time pretty wealthy Chinese people um, that are trying to sell the idea of invest in a Chinatown that's not going to be moved again, invest in what we believe to be the interpretation of what Chinese America looks like. Because if you look at it, this Chinatown is being constructed at the exact same time that San Francisco is reconstructing their Chinatown in the aftermath of the earthquake and fire that they had. So both of these Chinese American communities are looking at what's the interpretation that we're going to Um, practice in the construction of of our district. Well, if you look at San Francisco, they really did borrow this kind of chinoiserie, this kind of orientalia um, in the interpretation of their buildings, and the buildings are designed by American architecture firms. The same thing is happening in Seattle. Seattle hired American architects to design these buildings. These are not accidental buildings. These are very consciously well thought out and executed buildings by American architects, but the design is one that was following the typology of single room occupancy residential hotels that were on the rise in American cities beginning in 1880.
0: And why were they, uh, so including these, like when I look up across the street at the, well what is is that? Isn't that a Mason insignia? It is. So uh, who who built that and was that all SROs? Uh, these,
1: these are all SROs. This is the new American um, or the Norway hotel that was built by the Bingkong Tong. Uh, the Chinese Freemasons were um, part of this. If you look on the third floor, in fact, this is kind of interesting in American Chinatown cores. And um, I hope that you'll forgive me for calling this Chinatown, but you know, if you think about the district. This really was Chinatown. Not very large. Um, yeah. What, in spite how of large? What you'll hear. Four
0: square blocks. Six square blocks.
1: Um, probably about I would say four square blocks. Um, but anytime you would see these recessed or projecting balconies and and. You know, we still have some of them that are that are still part of the district. But anytime you see that, it tells you that the Chinese have either occupied or owned that building at one time, and it also tells you that the association, an association, is affiliated with that building. So it can be a district association, family association, or or a tong. So the new. Um, The New American or the Norway Hotel, the building that is on the corner of 8th and King, um, on the northwest corner, that is the Chin apartment, uh, residential hotel, and you see that it's got that projecting balcony with the wrought iron um, railing. That's also uh, an association. If we were across the street, looking at the, the East and West Bognik buildings, you'd see the same indication. This is kind of fun it's one of the only areas in the city where you can jaywalk and nobody's going to arrest it's you
0: so true i was thinking of that today it's so jaywalk, true
1: walk park illegally <laughs> double park yeah
0: oh you mean like even those recessed doors yep. what, what?
1: when you're looking at these doors at one time both of these buildings had projecting wrought iron balconies and cast iron that was going across both um, the second and the third floors of the building oh, so and what yeah. about
0: uh, so this so this is the Wing Luke Museum this is the yeah. east, west east Cognac yeah. that's west yes. <laughs> yes. what about those second story balconies with the lights around it on the mohai i mean on the wing luke one and the wrought iron yeah. gate yeah. on the internet? also
1: also associations um, both of these buildings were constructed by that same group of investors and um, This building, the the East Building, was sold to the Wing Luke Museum. Um, And I was not on the board at the time, but um, the Gongyuk Investment Company made the decision. Well, for one thing, these buildings are incredibly expensive to maintain, you know, to just keep them, to just keep them going. And there's a little history there, too. But the the Gongyuk Investment Company made the decision that they were going to sell the East Building. And when they reviewed and they were evaluating the bids, they wanted to make sure that this building would be retained as part of the Asian American history of Seattle. So they took the bid that was presented by the Wing Luke Museum. You know, at the time, they were located on 7th in an old garage. And they had always had leased space. So this was the first time that the Wing Luke Museum actually owned their own building. Um, The West Gong Yik is still owned by the Gongyek Investment Company, and it is one of the oldest corporations, licensed, registered corporations in the state of Washington. Um, at the time that this, uh, that the corporation was registered, there were about 3,200 corporations that had registered that year with the state. And of, that, of those 3,200, uh, there are only about 60 that are still in existence, and the Gongyek is one of them. The people who are on the board, with the exception of myself, um, the people who are still on the board—that—and um, all of this work is done voluntarily. No one on the board has ever been paid, or probably ever will be paid. So all of the work that's done um, is done by the descendants of those original shareholders. I am the only uh, non—really, yes.
0: Are you the 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 uh, the arbitrator and the expert?
1: Uh, No, I'm the outsider. Um, You know, I I've been really fortunate because the people who are on the board, um, you know, they've never have treated me like an outsider. I I can't say that that's always been the case in a number of other (laughs) institutions. (laughs) I'm going to say institutions and opportunities. We put that in scare quotes, but the, the. the guys on the board have always been really open to um, asking questions. They listen to me. I am no different than anybody else who's on the board, which is really wonderful. You know,
0: um, all right. I have a, a, th- two questions, and then I'm going to let you. You're going you're to show me even more things. But so this building, Kong 705 and a half, it has these small businesses. Uh, on well, I think at least on this side but I think also on the 7th Avenue side too Can that and and, and as opposed to the Wing Luke which is a museum, but is also not the small businesses can these small businesses be Preserved are they gonna are they gonna be viable do you
1: feel? Uh, I hope so, you know, what makes
0: them buy what will make them viable
1: well, I think that one thing is, um, well, let's, let's take Fortuna, for example. The previous owners, you know, they wanted to retire. They had been um, in that location for 25 years. You know, we were talking with them about, you know, how long have you been here? And I took, I took photographs of them on, you know, the last week that they were open. And um, now we've got someone new that's going to come into the space. They're going to keep running it as a restaurant. And, you know, we're looking at how can the Bognac Investment Company, how can we restore this building, still retain the corporation, because once the corporation, you know, if the building were sold, as we're seeing happening in the district now, then all of this basically would probably cease to be. And, you know, the, the... the people who are on the board still look at the Gong Yik as for the mutual benefit so it's not just that they're the descendants of the original founders but be, they, they've really taken on that that role of looking at what exactly does this building mean um so if the building gets redeveloped we've already had people say yes they want to come back they want to come back to this space well
0: here so above the wing loop. Are those SRO rooms still, are those still apartments?
1: Uh, no, none of this is for residential use now. It's, um, you know, offices for the Wing Luke, the storage of archival materials. They did retain some of the rooms um, on, let's see, on the North East corner uh... you'll still see some of the rooms and actually that's part of what they have as an immersion exhibit so that if you go in to tour the museum you can also um, ask for the immersion exhibit that will allow you to take a look at those rooms um, 705 though you see the Yik Fung Company this is kind of interesting because James Marr his father um, actually started that business and that business was located in the West Building, or in the West Building and when Mr. Marr, you know, as part of his will, he wanted to donate the store to the museum. So literally architects came in, they measured everything, they photographed everything. So they took the Yik Fung, pulled it out, and then transplanted it into um, the East Building
0: yeah but what, what about above the 705 and a half kong i mean are those that i see broken windows i see it boarded up are those empty i also see a flower pot in on one corner so are people still living in some of these and is this a single room occupancy building
1: ah uh, it's still it still is an sro um the the west kong building in this is probably in the 1970s they did a partial restoration of part of one floor. So it it meets contemporary code, and those units are still occupied in SRO rooms. We've also got a couple that are um, one-bedroom apartments, and there's one two-bedroom apartment that is still actively being leased by the people who live in the building. Now, the, the top two floors um, are, are still Vacant, And they've been vacant since the passage of the Ozark Hotel Ordinance in the mid-1970s.
0: Explain that.
1: Yeah. Um, In the 1970s, Seattle had a couple of fires, and in fact one of them, um, the Ozark Hotel Fire, was noted as being the second worst hotel fire that had ever happened in American hotel history. I'd love to tell you what the first one was, but I've never been able to find the name of it. so anyway, it, this happened in the mid-1970s. There was just, uh, lives were lost, property was lost. And then uh, in short succession, there was another fire, the Seventh Avenue Hotel Fire. All, now, both of these hotels were in the north side of the downtown. They were not in the district. But the city became so worried about these buildings um, and whether they had met um, any kind of fire standards and fire codes that they passed uh, what became as the Ozark Hotel Fire Ordinance that basically put all of the responsibility on local hotel owners to bring these buildings up to the immediate contemporary code. And for a lot of the people who owned these buildings, there was no possible way that they could afford to put sprinkler systems in the buildings. Quick release front doors, you know, up until the mid-1970s, the main doors to all of these hotels had always remained open, so they had to because if you wanted to check into a hotel room, you had to go into the main uh, door, ascend uh, one, maybe two flights of stairs, and that's how people would access the rooms and access the management. Um, once the Ozark Hotel Ordinance was passed, that was an impossibility so now you had to put quick release doors you had to get rid of transom windows um, in the rooms and they couldn't afford to do it
0: so when i walk around the id i see that i see boarded up windows there on this building it seems like are are there there's some people living in some of these sros of this freemasons building yes
1: yeah this is still occupied um, as SRO units. If the windows are broken, it could indicate that um, that it's unoccupied. It could indicate that they're just waiting to get the windows repaired.
0: How about that one you pointed out? The building
1: that's empty. That's empty. That's empty. So a lot of these were empty until probably um, I want to say about the in the 2000s you started to see kind of a rebirth of, of sections or buildings in the district. Um, CoHo Properties, that is operated by James Co. Uh, it was either in the same year or within a two-year period. He bought the Mar Hotel, it's more commonly known as the Hong Kong, because people were associated with the Hong Kong restaurant, uh, the Alps Hotel, and the Milwaukee Hotel. So he brought those three buildings back to residential use. All of them are at um, market rate. None of them are operated as SROs. I,
0: I look across the corner there at Seventh and King, and in Chin construction. That's yes. the old Wami. Is in the back of that, uh, of the, in the alley there. So what's going to happen with that? Looks like it was it was empty for a long time, wasn't it? Was
1: it? empty for quite a while. It was just you know it was another one another one of the SROs that was closed because of the Ozark Hotel Ordinance, and you know the owners of the building they were just in the process of doing you know restoration when um, when the fire occurred that basically took out the west half of. Of the building, and so they the the family has been really diligent. They wanted to preserve the building. I mean, if you think about it from their perspective, there wasn't anything that was left except that front facade uh, on King Street, and they they wanted to see it restored. So um, that's exactly what's happening. They're looking at. Um, I believe that the the projected plan is that this is going to open. Uh, reopen in 2019.
0: Will there be any market rate? Will there be any uh, low-income housing there? Or will it all be market rate? Do you I know? don't
1: believe that there's going to be any um, uh, low-income. You know, and part of this is, uh, you know, if you've got one of these buildings, it's it's really kind of amazing because almost everything to restore one of these buildings, the estimate comes in between 24 and 26 million, and if you've got to have 26 million dollars and you're trying to get a loan for it uh, the only way that you're really going to be successful in incorporating low-income housing is to partner with a a low-income housing or nonprofit community development association that's going to be able to access loans to help you uh, with that endeavor if you go with any other kind of bank um, they're going to be hard-pressed if you tell them, look, we wanted to charge the residents $138 a month. That No one is going to give you a loan. Is that, that. about
0: 20% of uh, of median? Is that what that works out? You're making 21000 a year or something?
1: Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the percentage is in it, but um, you would be hard-pressed to find anything in the city that rents for that amount of money. Yeah. We actually have some SRO units that are renting for that amount.
0: Yeah. Describe wait. Is that a very, is that a typical SRO unit? Describe like what was be what uh, what is an SRO unit typically that was built the, between the 1880s and the 1920s?
1: Um the, the typology of the building is they're going to be anything from 2 to 6 stories in height they're gonna have at-grade commercial so all these commercial storefronts and then everything from the second floor up is going to be um, literally they're like dormitory rooms where they're gonna have a shared bathroom that's gonna be somewhere down the hall Um, no cooking facilities although people still brought in hot plates um, to cook food but it was anticipated that if you lived in one of these buildings that you would access the, res, uh, the, the commercial spaces that would be part of the building, commercial spaces that would be part of the residential neighborhood. And so it was a really lively interaction of, of people who lived and worked and recreated um, within the district. So both the Chinatown core, which is where we're at right now, and the rest of um, the Chinatown International District. Oh,
0: oh do you know how many at its peak how many sro rooms or buildings whichever way you break it down were in the id and maybe overall in, in the downtown core
1: um i'm going to say thousands of them um i could call you and give you the the number that i have um i can say though that Japantown, you know people have a tendency to, to identify Japantown as just this little core area that was centered around um Main Street and 6th, but if you look at it in terms of commercial. Two
0: blocks to our north. Um, Let's see,
1: Uh, we're King, Jackson, Maine, yep, then Washington, yes, yes. But if you look at, if you look at Japanese American Seattle, just in terms of the work that they did in the businesses that were part of the residential hotels, the Japanese were managing residential hotels everywhere from the waterfront to Rainier, uh, all throughout the downtown with a concentrated core. About 60% of them were located south of Yesler Way. And the numbers, um, they had an association that was the Japanese Hotel and Apartment Operators Association. And um, at one time, if you look at the numbers of hotels by addresses not necessarily names because sometimes you could have two or three hotels that all have the same name but if you look at it in terms of the addresses and the names the the Japanese American community was operating at one time over three hundred and fifty different residential hotels just in the downtown area
0: you know I, I just uh, finished a book about John Okada the author of No-No boy, no no boy the novel, and uh, his parents grew up here. Yeah, his parents managed uh, one at, I think, Sixth and Dearborn, a hotel yeah. there. Yes. He would walk up to Washington Middle School and over to Broadway High School.
1: Yeah, he used to. Actually, he played with um, a friend of mine in the district. Uh, you know, over the years, I've been really, I've been so fortunate and so blessed to meet so many people that have been willing to share their lives, their stories about their parents, photographs which I think is that's the one thing that I'm so happy about with this with this book Um, but uh, Tyrus Okada he goes by Fish um, his grandparents operated the Fremont or the the Fremont laundry that was in the Fremont Hotel that was on 6th which was right next door to where John Okada grew up so they were contemporaries Uh, they used to play I'm gonna say they used to play in and among the noodle shop that was located in the Fremont Hotel until the owner would chase them out, so, yeah.
0: Do you see kids doing that today? Are there enough kids living down here, or is it all old people?
1: You know, there are children that, that live in the hotels um, still, that you'll see children that are living in the in the uh, West Gognick building. Um, you know, the, the district is changing. The the buildings are, are being sold. Um, You know, if you can't, well, it's almost like um, revisiting what happened with the Ozark Hotel Ordinance. That, you know, they closed the residential parts down. They were still able to to leave the commercial parts open because as long as no one was sleeping in the commercial storefronts, then it was okay. Um, But the same thing is happening with the MHA Ordinance, um, or I'm going to say the Rio Ordinance. Um, the Residential Registration and Inspection Ordinance that was passed in 2014. Now the City Council it, has been really careful to tell everybody that, that HALA and MHA are not going to affect the, the historic core uh, and I'm gonna say they're only partially right there because with the re-ordinance now for the first time these buildings are actually considered to be uh, apartment rentals. Before 2014, none of these buildings had the classification of being uh, residential units. And so when they were reclassified, now they have to meet a new standard of livability. The standard of livability is established by the city and then independent contractors go into the buildings to assess whether they are livable or not. If the building is considered to be not livable by the Rio standard, then the owner has a couple of choices. You can either take out yet another loan to bring the building back up to current code, or you can sell the building because, again, these buildings are incredibly expensive to to rehab and to um, renovate.
0: If you sell the building that are in that the buildings that are in the core here, are they protected, or would they could they be, or do you end up with facade and something else behind it?
1: Well, the the protection. Um, addresses the exterior of the building and i'm going to say to a degree the storefront so you still have to maintain the storefronts but whatever happens behind those walls that's pretty much up to whoever owns the building
0: even in this otherwise somewhat designated historical district right Yes. Yes. so uh, ozark ordinances mid-70s i remember john fox the housing activist railing against the decimation of the SROs, because they because they weren't just in, in the ID, they went all the way up First Avenue and they went all the way through downtown, and that's, he draws a direct line between so many more homeless and the lack of the SROs. Do you?
1: I'd have to say yes, yeah. Um, probably one of the worst things that happened was when they passed the ordinance, uh, the city's analysis was that the, the low-income units would be affected, but not really affected to any great degree. You know, that they believed that people would be displaced, but there would still be some opportunity for them to live somewhere else in the city that was going to be affordable. And what ended up happening is um, so many of these units closed. If, if you look at it, in an odd kind of way, the Ozark Hotel Ordinance did more to close these hotels than even the incarceration of the Japanese. It's amazing. The number of units that were lost. Um, the, the old Puget Sound Hotel, uh, that that was the largest hotel, the largest SRO, not just in the district, but in the city. It had 444 rooms. Where was It was located on Dearborn and Sixth. So right across the street from where John Okada was playing in the noodle shop, that was where the, the Puget Sound Hotel was. Wow, wow. Yeah, so... Um, 444 low-income rooms lost, And one hotel.
0: Is that gonna, is, I mean, I was gonna say, is that gonna happen here, but the, some of these have been closed for a long time, but as you say, we're not necessarily seeing SRO, we are not seeing SROs, single-room occupancy, buildings, in the ID anyways, being built. Part of that, there's a sort of this notion that, oh, those are substandard housing options. They're small, there's no bathroom, there may be a sink. You're fitting into a single single bed, into a very narrow room. um, And people should have better. There's the should in there. I'm leaving the should in there. But the, the should leaves us with nothing. Could they be built in a way that, or preserved, or re, rebuilt in a way that would be humane and offer people affordable housing?
1: Well, there's still, um, the NP Hotel, when Interim Community Development um, restored and renovated that building, there are still some SRO rooms, SRO rooms, that are part of of that building. Um, SROs actually have, have kind of had a rebirth in some American cities, that they are building them and recognizing that this is a good solid low-income alternative to being homeless I mean those are your options Um, but again now you're talking about the cost because the cost of construction of a new building you may spend I don't know 13 13 million dollars to to put a new building Um, then you have to ask yourself as the developer can you really afford to do it um,
0: well, some people argue for making the ordinances or the regulations, easing the regulations. I don't know if you do that with, and keep, still keep people safe.
1: I think you can keep them safe, but right now, the, the city of Seattle, we, we have regulated ourselves um, uh, to death. And it's not just Seattle, we're seeing this in central cities all across America, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I think our population of our homeless population is so high. It's not that we don't have the answers. We don't have the regulations that will enable us to exercise some of the answers.
0: Flexibility.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have just regulated ourselves to, uh, I don't know, to death. I
0: mean, I understand the argument, for the Ozark, I mean, I understand the impetus for something like the Ozark Ordinances or even the one you mentioned from 2014, but they don't seem to allow for, yeah, for flexibility, for um, people wanting to, choosing to live or having to live in other ways. That, you know, as you say, better than living in a cardboard box under the viaduct. Um, but we seem to be in a spiral. I don't know what, is there any, what mechanism gets us out of that?
1: Uh, if you find that out, let me know. I mean, the the um, probably one of the biggest problems with the passing of these ordinance, ordinances ordinances that the council doesn't really look at ramifications, and they have no financial plan, which is always amazing because the second that you tell building owners you must include sprinkler systems in your building, you must have uh, you know fire resistant doors. Well at the time that the the, the ordinance was passed uh, to outfit um, a building with fire doors would have been in excess um, you know in contemporary dollars it would have been well over a hundred thousand dollars just to do doors could, yeah. and no loans there's no opportunity for loans or grants and the you know this it's hey you own the building you figure it out kind of attitude and that's That's actually why the Republic Hotel um, was one of the first buildings, historic buildings in the historic core that was sold following the passage of the Rio ordinance. Where's that one again, the Republic? It's just located around the corner on 7th, yeah.
0: Take me me for a slight walk while I... So so yes, you mentioned loans. I mean, if you look at what the city spends on homeless, uh, on housing services, um, would there have been I mean if somebody had thought it through would there have been some sort of cost-benefit analysis the city say well let's give you a 30-year loan let's give you a 100-year loan
1: i don't think that the city actually looks into it Um, what they what they do and if you look at the homeless um, reports that have been done that analyze how seattle is spending its money okay so last year we spent What is it? Two hundred million dollars. They had two independent consultants, one from Chicago, that said the city of Seattle is not doing a good job. Let's go ahead and cross the street here. But they say that the city of Seattle is not doing a good job in addressing the homeless situation, even though we've got all of this money. So what happens to the report? Well, it gets deep six because that's not what the city council wants to hear. Um, And instead, they're going to they they want to now. See if we can increase that amount of money to $400 million for this coming year. And, you know, is that going to solve this problem? I don't think it's going to solve the problem until they figure out a way to have this money filter back into the property ownership that we already have. So, what you're looking at, not this building, because this building is the Norway Hotel, but the one that's right next to it is the Republic. And the Republic was owned by. Oh, you see the differentiation
0: by the, just the, the brick, they're butt up against each other, but, but the bricks are a little different. And that one has the uh, the uh, iron, uh, what are we calling those? Walkways, verandas? Uh, the
1: balconies. <laughs> the yeah, yeah. Yes. That's how you identify them because all of these buildings, these are basically zero lot line buildings. So somebody that wanted to build a residential hotel, you literally build your building right up to the lot line. And the only way that you can tell the difference between these buildings is to stand across the street and then start looking for the colors of bricks, what the courses of the bricks, are they kind of offset a little bit, uh, color, windows. Um, And it's kind of interesting because if you look at the Panama Hotel, If you go inside and you walk down the aisles, you'll see that there's a frame of windows, but there's also brick right next to it. Well, basically, the NP Hotel was constructed after the Panama, so when they built their building, all of the windows that used to be on the the uh, south side are now nothing but brick uh, in the center. Well, anyway, so when the Republic was, um, you know, the Rio was passed. The republic now this was an occupied uh sro
0: i remember there was a nice tea store in the basement in the in the first floor
1: and the family you know the association was looking at this and could they come up with all of the money that they needed to meet the requirements of rio and the answer was no and so the building was sold um, and it's going to be redeveloped as market rate housing so you know if we're seeing this happen over and over again and I'm gonna say not just with the residential hotels but also property that is or was owned by Asian Americans once they sell that property to another development concern that may be represented by non-Asian concerns well you have to ask yourself is this really a pan-Asian district if there are no more pan-Asian Property owners, if there are no more people who are living in the buildings, that if everything becomes market rate, then what happens to the identity of the district?
0: Yeah, because I read that in that Seattle Times article that this there's the um, this is the hot one of the highest or the highest neighborhood with low income um, uh, low incomes in the city, and it and it's about twenty one thousand I think was the was the number I read. So this is a place where. People without a lot of money have had a community for 150 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was it was really sad when when this building was sold, and I, you know I think that since the mid 1970s, um, there's been kind of a an overwhelming um, feeling by people who come into the district, tourists and even Seattle residents, that blame the owners for these buildings being closed. And in reality, it has so little to do with the building ownership. It has everything to do with trying to bring these buildings up to contemporary code. Yeah, the the,
0: the, 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 the rap is, oh, so many people own, have interest in the building, nobody can decide on what they want to do. That's sort of the general yeah. rap, but that's not it at all. I mean, these are organized people that have been organized for a hundred years, so they know how to operate.
1: Yeah, it's money, it's money. So it's, it's interesting when you look at the district because people, you know, they'll say, well, you know, this is a racist, racist, racist kind of decision-making process. But um, I'm going to say not really. This is, a, if you look at the city, um, property and land values in the entire city have escalated just to an insane level. And, um, you know, this is a great area. We've got transit. We're in the south downtown. Um, you know, it's like Yesler Terrace. Did They really, really, really need to tear down Yesler Terrace. Um, you know, they they tore down J- part of Japantown to build Yesler Terrace. Then they tear down part of Yesler Terrace to build I-5. And then they tear down y- what's left of Yesler Terrace. But if you look at the views, I mean, I hate to be crass about this. But are you going to give over some of the highest Beautiful real estate with the greatest views in the city. Do you want low-income neighborhoods in those? It's it's sad and it's disgusting. Yeah, it's,
0: but it was it was monetized. Well, we can even see part of it, can't we, from where we're standing? Oh yeah. Uh, it was monetized, and those new buildings—they're not the—they're not the low-income buildings, right? These no. are the market-rate buildings that These are look overlooking yeah. I-5 and the views. very it's not perplexing <laughs> I was gonna say it's very perplexing but it's not perplexing no it's, it's, pretty... <laughs> it's money it's pretty straightforward
1: it's pretty straightforward um, you know if you look at the district and you think about well now in the city there's so many building cranes everywhere and they use I don't know if they still say that you can um, evaluate the, the monetary strength of the city based on the number of building cranes but if you think about this district in 1910 basically everything that you're seeing was being constructed around the same time period. So, all of this, if you, if you can just kind of think about this in your mind's eye, but um, you know, the Louisa had already been constructed in 1909, but both the Gongik buildings are going up in 1910. This one is going up in 1910, 1911. The Alps Hotel, the same thing is happening. But, you know, just this whole neighborhood, basically, is comprised of residential hotels or low-rise commercial. That was it. That was the typology for the district.
0: It's the notion of residential hotels as being like this this uh, bastion of low-income uh, uh, opportunity for and many men, right, as we know, a oh, lot yeah. of men and who were working here, and because of the Exclusion Act, they couldn't bring their families, so many men were working here, that 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 that, to see that as a solution today is I mean it seems logical but and yet you know the apartments that that idea of building a very small um, apartments which are not cheap so (laughs) they're not exactly low income but neighbors all across the city have forced them to uh, they wouldn't let them be built they're afraid of them and so this is sort of like the last core that does at least because it was designed that way still has that option
1: Yeah, and you know, all of these buildings, it's interesting because they're, they're almost like the, uh, they're almost like your thumbprint because they may look like they're pretty much the same on the outside and they, on the inside, they're all different. They were all different. You know, I was so lucky to go in these buildings before they were rehabbed. What'd you see? Like, give me
0: an example of one that you saw when you went into. um,
1: well, this was one of
0: This the, Hotel Milwaukee? Yeah,
1: the Milwaukee Hotel was one of them, and it was right after James Coe bought, bought the uh, the property. And I asked Mr. Coe, I told him what I was interested in and that this was a research project, and I had lunch with Mr. Coe a few times, and he he is really one of the nicest people. He's just, what a guy. Um, and he looked at, at the rehabbing of these hotels as... Kind of a personal mission, but I told him that I really wanted to get into the Milwaukee to take a look at it, and he literally he gave me the key to the building that he had just bought, and said, "Go ahead, you know, photograph it, take a look at it, and uh, you know, when you're done, go ahead and give the keys to the construction guys. They'll be on the second floor, and that's that's where the um, uh, the restaurant used to be on the mezzanine level." Yeah, so they were kind of cleaning things out of the restaurant, and I went up into the building and started walking around, and uh, I have to tell you, I'm deathly afraid of pigeons. <laughs> and you're, I opened, you're not
0: in the right neighborhood. <laughs> oh,
1: my gosh. I opened up one of the interior rooms. You know, all of these buildings have light wells. yep, really? sur- Yeah, all of them. You don't see them from, this, from the front facades of the building, but they all have light wells. And I opened up one of the center rooms that was fronting a light well, and there must have been 500 pigeons in that, in that room that were all flying towards me. And I was, you know, pretty well terrified, but I thought, you know, I've, I've gotta walk this. I have to see this and feel what it was like to be in one of these buildings. Well, this was on a Friday afternoon, and I went downstairs to the mezzanine level to give the construction workers the keys. And I realized that they had all left for the day. They had all taken off early on a Friday and I thought, oh great, how am I going to get out of this building? Um, And I knew better than to get on the fire escape because the fire escapes hadn't been checked in like who knows how long. So I didn't want to take the fire escape because I figured that I'd fall through the thing and kill myself. (laughs) So you know, part of studying the buildings, I knew that the restaurants and the at-grade commercial would be connected somehow or another to the residential units. So I just kept trying doorways until I found the doorway that went downstairs to what used to be the Top Gun restaurant. And I went in through the basement and then came up through the um, the chef's area. And you know, I thought somebody would stop me and nobody did. They just thought, oh well, you know, she's walking through, it's no big deal. Um, but the light wells make these really interesting buildings. You know how they're positioned, where they're located. Do all of them?
0: Have, like, does the do the do the Kong Yiks have them? And yeah. the and the and this one is yes. this the Louisa?
1: Yep, this is the Louisa. This used to be the Hudson Hotel, and then it was renamed the Louisa, and it, later on in the mid 1960s, it was called Mint Hotel. Uh, but the Louisa was the name that stuck. Um,
0: that gives you a whole new view of it, though. I mean, perception of it that the that they have these light wells in the center of these buildings. Because yeah. these are half block long buildings, half block okay, so wide and long
1: buildings. Yeah, they're huge. Probably one of the best ways of getting an idea of what the light wells would look like would be if you look at the Publix Hotel that's located you know, on, on Fifth Street and kind of on the corner of King, that you can see that it almost is like the tines of a comb that if there was another building that was constructed that was abutted right immediately next to that, there would still be that square that would be open. And that's what all of these buildings have, every single one of them.
0: So uh, uh, that's great. Uh, that, so so the, Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Hotel, he doesn't have uh, low-income housing in it. It's, it's all market-rate market rate And so here's, a, here's the biz- this business on the corner. Can't blame the youth. Looks like they sell clothes, t-shirt, t-shirts and uh and it uh, looks like there's an espresso machine in there. And then next to it is a pretty nice pizza place. Yes. So is this the is this so this is the new ID perhaps? Is yeah. this good? Is this a positive or an, or or a negative? I mean, how do because it's hmm. it's it's a modern business. It's not the same as the uh Barclay Seafood. Yeah. Or uh the Jade I used to always eat at the Jade. Jade
1: Garden. Yeah. yeah.
0: I just love the J-card.
1: Yeah, it's it's not the same anymore, and there are a couple of ways of looking at this. I mean, would you rather see all of these spaces vacant? I think the answer would be no. Um, But we're lucky in that a lot of these businesses, these are still individual businesses. They're still not corporate. You know, we're in in a lot of ways we're lucky because we don't have uh, fast food chain restaurants that are part of. The district, and you can't say that in um, Pan Asian communities across the United States. That, you know, and I'm going to say that part of that is because of uh, Bob Santos. Uncle Bob was really just what a what a guy, a tremendous hero of the district. Um,
0: you met him. You talked to him.
1: Uncle Bob was the person who got me involved in the district when I first moved to Seattle. I moved here in 1987. And by 1989, I was already volunteering to do projects with different organizations in the district. And um, in fact, Uncle Bob was, he was the first person that I interviewed um, when I started working on the residential hotel book. Um, He was the director of uh, the Northwest Region for Housing and Urban Development. And I I did a cold call. (laughs) And he said, "Yeah, come on to my office." And I thought, "Oh my gosh, who is this person?" Um, but yeah, he um, he has nursed, had nursed a lot of people along.
0: I learned a lot from. I interviewed him a few times in oh the in gosh. the 80s and 90s. I learned a lot from him. Yeah. My first boss said, "Anytime you want to talk about this city, get Bob Santos on the line." So we would do that about anything, not just the ID. He, he just knew stuff. Five, what? Yeah. But what did he do? I don't know to keep the to keep the, the corporate stores up. It, oh my it...
1: gosh, he um, you know at one time McDonald's wanted to you know, yeah, right it, down there, right? Did yeah, they, they want to be right... into the beauty hotel, the beauty building? Um, and Uncle Bob said absolutely, positively no. And he had you know he passed out petitions. He asked us to get signatures. He wrote. A letter to the mayor. The mayor wrote a letter to the corporate office of McDonald's and said, no, this is not the place to put one, and McDonald's backed off. So it that was one of the great victories that showed that community development does work.
0: I mean, there are a lot of people still here, living here, right, and there's a lot of people who care about this neighborhood in one form or another. I know there's many fewer people living here, yeah. but um, I don't know. Is it, can you make the changes that need to be made? I mean, can you educate the city council, or is it are the forces of corporatization too strong? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what your opinion. Your opinion is no.
1: I'm. It's it's kind of painful to think about. If um, you've
0: been working on this for 30 years.
1: You know, I've been studying Asian American districts for a long time. Um, I just recently got back from taking a look at what's happening in D.C.'s Chinatown, and the same thing is happening. Um, Portland, same thing is happening. In fact, in their Asian American community, they've migrated to the 82nd Division area.
0: Yeah. Um, I, mean, I can't even find, I mean, you can see the the remnant buildings in downtown Portland, but that's kind of it. A few yeah. businesses. That's not a community like this is.
1: Yeah, I. I'll tell you, Steve, the operative word that you just used is the remnant, and that's exactly what it looks like. You know, so they're fighting to to hold on to uh, their designation. And there's also some conflict in the community in Portland um, because you know they've rebranded it. and you know they will, by changing the name and incorporating Japantown, which frankly I don't have a problem with. But um, in rebranding it, you know, you're, you're making that shift again. And if you look at the historic records of what's happened with um, the Chinatown at Portland, it has so many different designations of where the boundaries are, and, they, and it keeps getting smaller and smaller.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Marie Wong on the streets of Seattle's Chinatown International District. Part two, we go inside the West Cognac building, and we walk back out onto the street as well. If you like this story, why don't you check out my story on Marie Wong and the future of the International District. It's in the December 2018 issue of Seattle Magazine. And if you like this podcast, do go over to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. That'll get the word out to more people. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again.